In the mid-1990s, there was a popular novel called Fight Club, published by Chuck Palahniuk. The 1996 novel was optioned and recrafted into a movie that premiered in 1999. It was directed by David Fincher and starred Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, and Helena Bonham Carter. The movie has since become a cult classic. The premise explores the world of a psychologically disaffected white male who starts a fight club, a place where men brawl after hours. Now, there is much more to the book and the movie than this theme. And there are those who haven't read the book or seen the movie. So as a disclaimer, as a disclaimer, uh, know that I'm not a film critic, though I do feel indebted to Ed Guerrero and his important work framing blackness, the African-American image in film culture and the movie image for his ability to historicize the history of Blacks in film. So I will leave the deep analysis of cinema and pop culture history to the scholars who have critically examined the Fight Club enterprise for the past two decades or more. However, I do have some observations that I am interested in explicating um, in terms of the well-known tagline for the film words that are deeply and prominently situated in American pop culture. This is a line uttered by the narrator's alter ego, the character Tyler Durden, who said, the first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. This is Dr. Catherine Bancoli Medina with The Invention of Racism. The goal of this podcast series is to share the subtle, and not so subtle nuances of racism from the past into the 21st century. Understanding and speaking the truth about racism is the first step toward combating and ultimately eliminating it. In this podcast episode, we examine the reproduction of racism in The First Rule of Racism. There is a brief overview of the Fight Club phenomenon and then a look at racism and the popular tagline. Now, there was an assortment of US films issued in 1999, but let's talk about Fight Club for a moment. And if you haven't read the book or seen the film, some of these observations might provide spoilers. And let me tell you, I read the book many, many years ago when it came out, and I did see the film in theaters, no less, in 1999. The entire Fight Club premise rests upon white masculine anxiety and nihilism, including their capitalist angst and all-consuming social-cultural disappointment. And I would even insert also encompasses a deep-seated loathing and envy of the upper classes and the female gender. These men live in a world that they feel does not serve them, a world where they have no touchstones of power and influence. But also keep in mind that the specters of black people litter the film. They are there in the background, sometimes imperceptible, and are most represented through law enforcement principally through the black character of arson detective Stearns, played by Tom Gossam Jr. 
But despite the insertion of random black characters, the film is about the white male response to capitalism and corporatism when it doesn't seem to be working for them. These men are admittedly alienated by their fathers and according to Fight, and according to Fight Club, represent a generation of males raised by women. This is supported by a profound mediocrity. Ultimately, violence is the thing that empowers them, gives them life, a sense of purpose. Sound familiar? What starts as an underground fight club turns into a highly coordinated white male-led domestic terrorist group obsessed with mischief, chaos, and mayhem. In the late 1990s, the overall message of Fight Club acknowledged a modern existential crisis directly signaling a generation of young white men. At the time, they were in their late 20s and 30-somethings, trying to fathom the complexities of life right before the turn of the century, 2001. The main character in Fight Club, the narrator, is a white male with a split personality. The threat of all-consuming insanity is his constant companion as he undergoes a series of mental breakdowns that lead to a violent act of self-discovery. Fighting with his alter ego, Tyler Durden, means that his acts of domestic terrorism are undertaken in an effort to bring about a collapse of the economic system. But from a racial lens, the multicultural fraternity of disaffected males is, in reality, only about the internal war taking place in the white male psyche. Questioning the relevance of corporate culture and yet unable to participate in it at higher echelons, the narrator, who is white collar office worker is ultimately presented as an exploited laborer, one who becomes in his twisted and disturbed mind a guardian for the whole of society. The popular Fight Club story presented is very superficial when compared to the 1990s black male experience. The narrator in Fight Club is often thought of as a rebel without a cause type as in the 1955 film starring the cult figure James Dean. The problem is that these men don't want to participate in the middle-class mendacity of American capitalism. Yes, they want to destroy the power elite, but they don't really know what they want beyond that. Thus, taking on the system is a confused, empty, symbolic act. While the incarceration rates of black males in local jails and state and federal prisons steadily rose from the 1970s through the late 1990s, black males were structurally denied full and equal societal participation, funneled into the criminal justice system, and placed in situations where they literally were fighting for the breath of life. They share an historic and contemporary oppression actually fueled by mass incarceration and the exploitation wrought by racial capitalism. Yet the narrator in Fight Club has the privilege of railing against the system that is run by people who look like him, other white males. And yet he sees anarchy, he seeks anarchy 
in order to take down a system that essentially bores him. If the collective experience of those shadowy black characters in the background were brought to the forefront, Fight Club would have a completely different meaning. And one of the messages suggests that all males in society have the same historic grievances. That is the same as white males. Films like Fight Club are important for understanding how racism surreptitiously reproduces itself in the popular culture. Because first and foremost, it doesn't reference or address the overwhelming significance of racial injustice at all. And this leads to another observation about the famous tagline. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Well, you do not talk about Fight Club because it is a secret. It's clandestine. By definition, it is something exclusive. Only a privileged few among those who don't see their own privilege can know about and participate in it. It is illegal and dangerous and gives the participants a sense of hyper-masculine rebelliousness. This is why the men involved feel so empowered. They are salesmen or waiters by day and gods of war by night. And in order for all of this to exist, you cannot talk about it or raise awareness beyond a whisper. If you do, the threat is that at some point, the nihilistic club will cease to exist thus they will cease to exist. Yet this catchphrase is an important example for how we reproduce racism, especially anti-black racism in American society and around the world. So I submit the first rule of racism is you do not talk about racism. Traditionally, this has been the general rule of governments, institutions, and individuals in dealing with a multiracial population. The most important counter response to racism is simply to eliminate the dialogue. This does a couple of things. First, it allows for absolute control over the discussion about racism. To say we don't see race or that we are colorblind in effect attempts to end the discussion over racism altogether. And second, to the extent racism is seriously discussed, critical knowledge of the inner workings of racist systems are kept, once again, a secret among a select few. The immediate example currently in the news involves law enforcement. And I'm thinking about uh, police department policies that consistently state they don't use quota systems that disproportionately target people of color, juxtaposed to the data that shows a pattern of people of color being inordinately stopped, frisked, fined, harassed, or arrested. And the other example is when law enforcement agencies immediately circulate self-aggrandizing narratives about the death of a citizen that is then later to be found vastly different, untrue, from the forensic video or eyewitness evidence. This is important because those who wield racial power know the truth about racism. 
They know that they can control the dissemination of stories that will shape public opinion and that the masses of people can be easily swayed to believe in ideas that they refuse to vet or investigate further. So shutting down the entire discourse on racism allows for absolute control over the discussion about racism. Consider that, according to racist logic, the catchphrase, playing the race card, and you know I'm using that phrase in air quotes, means that black people are unfairly talking about racism and demanding change. The new narrative being advanced is that blacks are asserting victimization in order to gain an unfair advantage over white people. It is a misleading and degrading phrase meant to demean decades of racism, inequality, and the open conversation about racism. And it is an insulting phrase intended to verbally harm. When racism is ignored and you hear playing the race card, you, automatically put, you are automatically put on notice to ignore and disregard the issues at hand. Those who use this term usually feel disempowered by a nation they believe belongs exclusively to them. And blacks and other people of color are the target. The term is a misnomer meant to insinuate a form of reverse racism, that white people are somehow being disadvantaged in any discussion involving racial bias issues. As I said, this is the most important way racism reproduces itself, by intentionally hiding in plain sight, pretending that it is a mythological construct, i.e. non-existent, and then convoluting the discourse by creating false scripts. I surmise that to the extent that racism is discussed in elite social and political enclaves, knowledge is indeed kept among a select privileged few who understand it as an important mode of power and control. It is interesting to note that in every society, we have racism, but curiously enough, no races. This is very telling because those who have the ability to wield power know the truth about systemic racism. And they also know that they can control how this idea is spread in order to maintain that power. One example is the recent Senate Republican action of blocking the debate in support of the For the People Act, a landmark voting rights bill. Blocking this voting rights bill is consistent with the Republican effort to pass more laws restricting access to the ballot box, especially in black demographic areas. This is a form of shutting down the discussion, along with the GOP rejection of a bipartisan independent commission to even investigate the January 6, 2021 insurrection. Now, of course, you know, this is a multi-pronged endeavor that also involves the current almost frenzied effort to create a critical race theory boogeyman, a terror in the education sector. It is nothing more than a red herring but GOP leadership have implemented immediate legislation 
Huh. So one Ashanti proverb says, one falsehood spoils a thousand truths and racists are in constant battle with the truth. Regarding the actual substance of critical race theory, I strongly recommend reading and studying the founding texts, such as Words That Wound, Critical Race Theory, Assaultive Speech, and the First Amendment, also Critical Race Theory, the key writings that form the movement, and of course, 20 years of critical race theory, looking back to move forward. Note that multiple editors of these works are listed in the description. And they include, of course, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, whose immense contribution to critical race theory, the entire project has been fully documented. And if you, and you should also see, I'm also recommending that you see her responses to the GOP's attempt to turn critical race theory into a national security threat. And check out one of my recent podcasts, episode 23, When Racists Mislabel Things, The Myths Surrounding Critical Race Theory. Now, another example of not discussing racism and changing the entire narrative is from recent political history, and it is called the Southern Strategy. The Southern Strategy was, and is, the use of racist ideology and linguistic tactics to curry favor and capture more white Southern support for Republican Party platforms and candidates. Of course, mudslinging and racist signaling in politics is absolutely nothing new. However, in the effort to shift white voters from their historic attachment to the pro-slavery and pro-segregation Democratic Party, the Southern strategy began in the 1950s and has reflected over time the political rhetoric of white ethno-nationalist politicians. Its origins are often attributed to Republican strategist H. Lee Atwater, though politicians decades before Atwater laid the groundwork. But Lee Atwater was a conservative Republican who influenced the, who influenced the campaigns of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Atwater clearly articulated a political strategy that manipulated the racial sensibilities of people. In his infamous 1981 interview, he essentially said that overt racist language, like using the word nigger, damages Republican election outcomes, that such speech should be more abstract, but clear enough to send the message that conveys the racist speech. This coded language is called a dog whistle in American politics, but as we have seen these days, that dog whistle has turned into a massive bullhorn. So words like nigger and all that it connotes historically was replaced over the decades with coded words and phrases like states' rights, law and order, welfare and welfare queen, war on drugs, forced busing, low income, and super predator. And today we must also include even more words to this uh, dog whistle vocabulary, including hoodie, thug, inner city, urban, and so on. The point is, 
Atwater confirmed that political strategists had to focus on reshaping language and manipulating ideology in such a way as to shore up the stability of racism and yet at the same time be able to deny that racism exists. And during elections, this racist ploy seems to be very effective every single time. These catchphrases are used routinely every day and new rhetoric is constantly being created. And everyone knows what these words are intended to mean. I recommend the 2014 book, Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class by Ian F. Haney Lopez. Some scholars believe that the Southern strategy helped to give birth to our modern understanding and iteration of neoliberalism. Generally speaking, a political ideology upholding globalization, increased military and war operations funding, protecting the profit-driven and consumer-based free market economy, and most importantly, the implementation of domestic policies and practices that limit government spending on quality of life measures for the populace especially those activities and programs that impact and elevate the lives of black and poor people. All of this ultimately maintains the status quo by placating the conservatives, pacifying the left, and always upholding the historic racial caste system. Now don't get me wrong, I think Fight Club is an interesting and instructive film. And there should be more analysis that focuses on how race is examined or not in these types of films. So what is the first rule of racism? As we have seen in today's public discourse about racism and race, the systematic elimination of any meaningful discussion about racism serves to create a blank template which preserves racism. This empty whiteboard, if you will, no pun intended, is used to craft a new discourse, a false, negative, and damaging brand, something that has nothing to do with how racism actually functions and how, it, and how to eliminate it. Still, as I mentioned at the top, the year 1999 saw the distribution of countless films, big budget as well as independent movies. This includes a film that was released which gives us another dimension of how one director's brave vision incorporated the liberatory drama of history, nationhood, culture, and race. In 1999, acclaimed filmmaker Haile Jirima directed the documentary film Adwa, an African Victory. The film took on the historic 1896 Battle of Adwa in which the Ethiopian army defeated the Italian effort to conquer and colonize the nation. This film shows African people's triumph over racism and white supremacy, and this event, much like the Haitian Revolution in 1791, reverberated throughout the black world. And so, as someone who grew up with movies, I can't help but to compare side by side the much deeper meaning of contemporary white male angst over corporate mendacity with that of black males 
fighting for their country's freedom in order to stop the invading forces of colonization. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I want to take a moment to thank Dr. Lopez Matthews Jr. for his assistance in developing this podcast. Support for independent podcasts like The Invention of Racism is critical at this moment. In the national and global effort to dismantle racism and to establish human equality, we need as many thoughtful and courageous voices as possible. It is all hands on deck right now. If you believe in and appreciate this anti-racism podcast, continue to download, like, and share and support us. And I also encourage you to use your own media platform to honestly analyze and examine and help put an end to racism. If you are listening to this podcast, then you already know racism, the discourse on, on racism is not for the faint of heart. I hope that you will continue to join me as I present key topics in the invention of racism.